This is Car Expert. Whether Geely can do the same thing with Lotus in the luxury space, I think is, is another challenge. We'll have to see if that built-in kind of name equity works in their favour. I'd imagine someone in the Subaru badging department's decided it's silly to be building two sets of badges, or maybe X's and B's cost more in the production world, like Scrabble, and instead they're moving across track. G'day, Scott Collie. Hello, Mandy Turner. Thank you for saying my name first. It's a nice little, <laughs> nice little switch up. <laughs> The smirk Gosh. on Will's face right now. Hello, with uh, It's not a smirk. I'm rolling my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> it's like every week now. <laughs> oh, it's it's a thing. Well, you know, they say in your podcast they always start with the exact same introduction all the time. So you know. This is ours. <laughs> some of my favourite podcasts, I, I, for some reason I can't think of any examples right now, but they start with just petty whinging about which order the hosts were introduced in. So we'll just follow in their footsteps. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Most of the time I go by surname alphabetical order. So today I did. So there we go. It's official. Um, That's fine. I'm now. not offended in the slightest. I get <laughs> I get the and credit. How prestigious. <laughs> Two, yes. Um, now, we'll start off with a bit of sad news. We have covered this story in the past about the Ford Fiesta production ending, but it was originally only just for Australia, but now, Will, it's for the entire world. Yes. So after 47 years and over 22 million Fiestas produced, they are ending production of it in Cologne, Germany. That's the last factory that still produces the Fiesta. Um, Ford had already confirmed that they were going to be building a new electric crossover there. They've actually just brought that forward slightly. So that will be one of two uh, MEBs of Volkswagen-based uh, electric uh, crossovers uh, for the European market exclusively. But, yes, the, the Fiesta is gone. And if you actually look at Ford's global portfolio, there's precious little uh, of this size left so that the car went out of production in in South America a few years back. You can't get that anywhere anymore. Um, The Fiesta is now dead. There's reports the Focus could be following it at some point. So that leaves the smallest Fords in in, in its portfolio as being, you know, crossovers like the Puma um, or the little or the kind of vaguely Focus-sized Escort sedan in China. So, yeah, it's a bit sad if you're you're a fan of, you know, relatively affordable small Fords. Um, Derek on Car Expert has done an awesome story going back through the Fiesta's history. It's, it's really worth a look, even if you're not a Ford person, because what blew me away about it is how versatile the car's been through the ages. Um, I, I think of the Fiesta as a three-door hot hatch and then a five-door hot hatch, but over its life, it's been a sedan, a van, a ute. Uh, it has spawned little SUVs for the developing market. It's been a hot hatch. For a while, it wasn't a hot hatch because everyone in the UK kept stealing those. <laughs> it's had a really fascinating history and it's, it's well and truly worth having a look at that story because even though in Australia, our experience of the car was quite limited, globally, the Fiesta was a massive deal and consistently one of the best-selling cars in Europe. Scully, Fiesta Ute, I didn't know these existed. Yeah, Mandy, I can see Will like straining at the leash to talk about this, so I'm going to handball to him. This, this is right up his alley as a niche car from an American-owned car maker. <laughs> there were so there were actually from memory uh, two different, and I really should just have Derek's article up because it's a really good resource. 
two different versions of the Fiesta that had been turned into Utes. One was called the Bantam, one was called the Courier. They weren't actually the exact same body. They were slightly different and they were developed for different markets. Um, look, I think we've we've probably all, all got a Fiesta memory, even though, uh, Scott, as you said, it wasn't actually sold here for that long in the grand scheme of things because it's been produced since the 70s in Germany, but we only had, what, three generations of it. We were pretty late in getting it because a Ford Australia kind of stuck with the Festiva for a while and they tried the car and that didn't really cart it. Um, so then they brought in the, the Fiesta. And I don't know, one of my strongest Fiesta memories is that ad campaign that Ford had when they first introduced it here. Remember with the German scientists and they were they were dancing and being all provocative and sexy? Yes. You know, it's, it's um, I see you, baby, shaking that ass is playing in the background. <laughs> if you guys listening right now have not seen that commercial... Man, it's one of my favorite <laughs> car commercials because it's just ridiculous. Because that generation of Fiesta was not at all sexy. It was a very handsome little thing, but not at all sexy. And I mean, that was around the time that Renault had the Baby Got Back Magan commercial, which kind of made sense because it actually kind of had a bit of a butt to it and the Fiesta didn't. Um, but anyway, um, but look, it's I find it really sad that the Fiesta's gone because Ford of Europe has always been very good at developing, you know, passenger cars and actually also crossovers now because the Puma is great and that's that you know uses the same bones as the Fiesta but tooling up the, these passenger cars and crossovers that are actually really enjoyable to drive um I've spent over the past week I don't know how this happened but um I've driven two friends Hondas one a Jazz one a City and look perfectly fine little cars efficient practical whatnot but, oh, they just did absolutely nothing for me. Very uninspiring. And I'm not generally kind of a small hatchback kind of person, but I think if I was going to own something, I'd want something to be just a little bit more kind of engaging to drive. And I think the Fiesta has always kind of ticked that box for people and not just the STs, um, the, 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 the lower end stuff as well. So it's really sad. And I want to talk uh, as well about a kind of broader point here that I know a couple of people have mentioned. Ford is ending production of the Fiesta to make room for for another electric crossover. Um, and, you know, obviously they have their goals of, of producing, you know, X amount of, of electric vehicles switching to an entirely electric passenger car lineup by whatever year, et cetera. But you also have to consider the fact that companies are, are discontinuing the most efficient, the most economical, the most low emissions vehicles to prioritize um, electric vehicles, fine, but also to prioritize their more profitable, often larger, more, you know, sorry, less fuel efficient vehicles. So if you really want to bring down fleet emissions, you would think that until you can completely change over to an electric only lineup, that you would want to prioritize uh, these smaller, more efficient vehicles. But that's not the case because obviously vehicles this size don't tend to be the most profitable vehicles. So companies have to have to pick their battles there. But it's, you know, it's, it's a bit of an interesting situation. Yeah, well, I think you hit the nail on the head there when you said vehicles actually have to sell and as much as a Fiesta Ford doesn't sell emits zero grams of CO2 and is better for the environment than a, a big F-150 or, or something like that they do sell ultimately it's got to focus its energies on segments that are booming and in this case it's cars like the Puma and the, the slightly larger focus although that's not looking all that rosy in some parts of the world as well um, that are, are making money um, and I think 
down the track, if we can get ourselves to Europe, the Volkswagen ID1 versus Ford Fiesta EV comparison is going to be a fun one to put together. Well, that's a really good point. And they have also said, uh, but they have also said that they're not going to replace it directly, but there is going to be an EV version of the Puma. And you have to consider as well, it's more profitable for for Ford, you know, presumably to build a bunch of Pumas than it is for them to build Fiestas because they can charge a little bit more, but the underpinnings are largely the same. So it is really sad. And we're also seeing this kind of the death of these more affordable vehicles. We've seen this segment just be really hollowed out in Australia. And it's, it's also happening in Europe with the segment below and now I'm concerned that it's also going to happen with this segment because, you know, and, and what what is particularly interesting is Fiesta sales didn't exactly just tank. Like o- over a period of time, it hasn't been declining massively. There's been a sudden kind of decline during, the, during COVID, um, probably because when you've got so many semiconductors to use, you're going to prioritize, your, again, your more profitable vehicles. Uh, so it, this is not a, a vehicle that's just been dying for years. It's been very, very, very popular, huge seller in Europe for years. So uh, it's really sad. Maybe it'll come back someday. I would love to see an ID1 versus Fiesta EV comparison. We know Nissan's introducing a micro EV, um, but yeah, very sad. It'll probably come back as an SUV version shortly. No. If they're, if they're going to revive it, which defeats the whole purpose of it. But anyway. And one thing I will say before we move on, there is as a video. There's only one more one thing. Yeah. Will. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like Columbo. Hey, I can't do a Peter Falk impression. Um, but uh, there is. You just cut all of this. <laughs> there's a video that Ford put together to say farewell Fiesta. And it's a, an, a grandfather reading a, a, a book to a, to a child. And it's about the history of the Fiesta. And it's, it, it actually really does kind of hit you in the feels and you're like, oh, wait, why am I getting sad over a car? But I highly recommend going to YouTube, looking up Farewell Fiesta. And while you're there too, check out uh, Derek's article at Car Expert. Oh, Jack Quick doesn't join us this week for news, but the rest of the team will take us through the biggest news items of the week. Will 100 companies call for a million EVs in this country within, what is it, five years? This is a big call. Yes, uh, and a lot of major companies as well. So it's not just car companies that have called for this, uh, although there are certainly several of them, BMW, BYD, Jaguar, LDV, MG, Polestar, Renault, Tesla, and Volvo, uh, but also mm-hmm. you know, electric vehicle charging infrastructure providers like EV, Jet Charge, and Tritium, and then companies like IKEA and, and Uber. Uh, they're calling for... 1 million electric vehicles to be on Australian roads by 2027. But that's just one of several goals that they are calling on the Australian government to achieve. Because if you'll remember, uh, the Australian government introduced a a consultation paper uh, asking for submissions for their national electric vehicle strategy. Uh, Today, uh, as of the day we're recording, 31st of October, it is the final day for submissions. So the Electric Vehicle Council, a a lobby group for electric vehicles in Australia, has put out this two-page ad with all 100, I guess, sponsors of of this um, to basically push the Australian government to include not only that lofty 1 million vehicle by 2027 goal, but also to introduce fuel fuel efficiency standards consistent with the US, New Zealand and the EU. A coordinated rollout of a charging network for cars, trucks, and buses with a focus on the regions, suburbs, and high-density buildings, which kind of sounds like a focus on everything when you think about it. Um, (laughs) A 
collaborative EV industry development plan to boost investment in EV manufacturing products and services. So we know that some um, EV related stuff is manufactured here. For example, Tritium's got a facility right here in Brisbane. Um, But they're also calling for more support for electric buses, trucks, and other commercial vehicles for Australian businesses and for economic modeling that takes into account the benefits of EV. So the EV council says that having more EVs on the roads will reduce pollution, makes sense. Um, we'll shore up our fuel security because we'll have less of a reliance on foreign um, on foreign uh, fuel. Um, and there's also potential manufacturing opportunities here. I do wonder if this is maybe more performative than it is actually productive. Um, a lot of what the EV Council puts out is quite useful and interesting and it's done a really good job bringing some of the stats that come with the transition from petrol to electric power into the mainstream. But we now know, based on both public and behind-the-scenes conversations, that the intention of this government is to legislate in a way that is going to encourage the uptake of electric vehicles. So on the last day of submissions being open for these companies all to come out and say, yeah, we want electric cars, that's good. Um, it does feel a little bit like the goal is open and the ball's trickling over the line and rather than standing back and letting their teammates score, they want to get in on the action. I understand that obviously the weight of these companies is significant and on a government level, but also just a private sort of consumer level, seeing this many household names support a cause does have some value. But ultimately what these people are calling for is the same thing that the EV Council has been calling for for a very long time, what car makers have been calling for for a very long time. So although it is a, a show of support and strength, I don't know that it moves the conversation on maybe as far as when we first saw that headline and we were first contacted about it, maybe we thought it would. Over to you, Sky, the 2023 Subaru Crosstrek is coming here at some point next year. Yes, Subaru's mysterious announcement just got slightly less mysterious. Um, When it showed off the Crosstrek globally, we didn't know when it was going to be in Australia. We just kind of knew that it would happen at some point and that when it did, it would take over from the current XV. Now we know it's going to be here during the early stages of 2023. That could mean anything from January to June which I realise is quite broad. But based on the the wording and what we sort of expect of those words in the industry, it's likely it'll be in the first quarter of the year or something close to that. Um, some versions of the current model are already sold out for the rest of 2022. And obviously, given it's being replaced, we don't expect more stock of them to come. Um, and Subaru Australia is now accepting expressions of interest about the new XV, about the new Crosstrek, sorry. That habit is going to be hard to break. <laughs> um, the Crosstrek sort of takes what the last XV was and just ramps it up a little bit in line with the new Outback and the new WRX. It's got a slightly better looking body, I would say. Uh, It's got some prominent black cladding around the wheels and some funky new lines and and stuff to make it stand out in what has become an increasingly crowded class. And it's based on the latest Subaru Global Platform, which is designed to make the cabin quieter and more refined, the car safer and stronger, and by extension, the way it drives more refined and grown up. we're expecting to see the option of a two-litre box of four-cylinder petrol engine as well as an e-boxer hybrid. And, of course, it will be all-wheel drive because unless it's the BRZ, everything Subaru in Australia is all-wheel drive. Um, Subaru hasn't actually confirmed what to expect from these engines based on outputs. Um, it has promised some refinements to the hybrid, 
I'm hoping those refinements are throwing the system out and putting a Toyota one in instead. Um, because the XV is good at a lot of things and Subaru is good at a lot of things, but that hybrid system is barely even a mild hybrid. It's, uh, it's, it's a little bit poor alongside what Toyota offers. Um, beyond that, we expect the car to be a very similar size outside to the old one, but inside it'll have a much bigger screen in the middle and a much more modern looking dashboard, again, in keeping with what we've seen in cars like the Lavorg and the Outback. Um, the big change here, I suppose, is is the name, really. I know that sounds really boring, but Subaru are the masters of the iterative update and their customers love that. Changing from XV to Crosstrek is kind of the only thing that surprises us about what we've seen so far. That's a good name too, doesn't it? Yeah. It's been used before um, on a version of the Impreza and in the States, I believe, the XV is called the Crosstrek. So ah. I'd imagine someone in the Subaru badging department's decided it's silly to be building two sets of badges or maybe X's and V's cost more in the production world like Scrabble <laughs> uh, and instead they're moving to Crosstrek. Now, Will, if you want to buy a new current Ford Mustang, well, uh, good luck with that. Yeah, you're just going to have to walk over to the used car section of the Ford lot because you won't be able to get any more in. So basically... Order Bank, Ford had suspended orders for the current generation Mustang a little bit earlier this year. Uh, they said that they just want to prioritize people that were already in the queue. They said that there was overwhelming interest in the Mustang. And indeed, it's it's remained a, a strong seller, especially when you consider it's a, uh, a coupe and convertible in a market that where everyone seems to want an SUV. Uh, but Ford has finally just kind of called time on the Mustang and said, look, due to overwhelming interest in the current Mustang, Autobank is now at capacity. Therefore, we regret to inform customers that we are no longer taking any new orders for the current Mustang, uh, which means that if you want a new Mustang and you have not already put your order in for one, you are going to have to wait for the seven generation Mustang, which isn't actually due here until late 2023. So that's just a bit of a wait there, um, which is unfortunate if you are a Mustang connoisseur. The current Mustang, although it is getting a bit old and is about to be replaced, it does really still have plenty of charm about it. And there's some elements of the interior that on paper at least are actually quite like relative to the more modern look in the, the new car. So yeah, I am, I am curious, Will, would you be waiting or do you think maybe it's time to run out and snap up an outgoing GT just in time? Look, I don't know. I, 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 they haven't even released official power and torque figures for the new Mustang. We know that these are improved uh, new generation versions of the Turbo 2.3 liter and the, and the Atmo 5 liter V8. Um, we don't know what prices are going to be. We don't know if, if specifications are going to change. Uh, they haven't given us a full list of all the safety equipment the Mustang will have. We don't know exactly. So there's a lot of we don't knows here just yet. So it's been revealed. We've seen it inside now. I've sat in one. Very nice. Um, I actually like the new interior. I, I think the old interior, I get where they were going there, but I think they, they kind of run that well dry with the retro dual cow look. I'm, I was a bit tired of it. Um, but, uh, yeah, look, I, I don't know what I would be doing. I, I would really want to know, you know, all of those details before I decide, oh, well, I'll just stick with an old one. Um, but that said, you can't put in a new order for an old Mustang. And lastly, Scully, the Lotus Electra EV is being detailed and it's coming here in a couple of years. It sure is. This is a radical departure from everything we've come to expect from Lotus. Mandy, I know you've had some experience in the Elise and the Exige, so it's going to look a bit different to you. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> but I actually, I'm kind of keen to play a guessing game on this if you guys are keen. Yeah. 
So the slowest version of the Electra, which is a large electric SUV, is going to have 450 kilowatts of power and 710 newton meters of torque. How fast do you think it goes from zero to 100? I'm going to abstain because I wrote this article. Mandy, go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) I would straight three. Four and a half. You're a little optimistic there. Oh, I am. So the Electra and the Electra S will do 600 k's of claimed range on the WLTP test cycle with the 20-inch wheels. The the standard 22-inch wheels, which look fantastic in the pictures, will eat into that range somewhat, but there are no cost options. So you can choose style, you can choose range. You can't have both, unfortunately. The range-topping Electra R has 675 newton kilowatts even and 985 newton meters. How fast do we think it goes from zero to 100? Three. Yeah, pretty much bang on, (laughs) 2.95 seconds and the range of 490 kilometers an hour. Lotus says it's the fastest dual-motor electric SUV, so it'll do... 265 k's an hour flat out. It's worth making that distinction that Lotus has very carefully made fastest meaning top speed, not quickest, which is the Model X, which will accelerate to 100 k's an hour in 2.6 seconds. So if you're on the Autobahn in a Model X and you see this Lotus coming up in your mirrors, short of stopping and having a drag race, it's got you covered. Um, In a nod to Lotus's past, the R has a track mode. It'll lower the ride height, uh, gives you more performance-oriented settings for the dampers and the active anti-roll bars, and it also gives you launch control and opens up the active grill to get as much air as possible into the hot bits behind the, the grill. Because even though it's electric, stuff still needs to be cooled. Um, it'll also charge from 10 to 80% on a DC rapid charger in just 20 minutes and has an 800-volt architecture. So in terms of the tech on board, it really is up to date with what we're seeing from everyone from Hyundai with eGMP all the way through to Porsche with its PPE platform. Um, the other, I think, really significant element of this is that where Lotuses usually were cars that were stripped out with no driver assist, this thing will have a LiDAR tech um, sensor on the roof, uh, which is designed to enable really high-tech and up-to-the-minute autonomous driving functions in a similar way that the latest Volvo and Polestar products will. So maybe instead of a a focus on driver engagement when you're on the road, this thing is going to have a focus on driver disengagement and you can watch a movie on the screen in the middle instead. Um. What are you guys' thoughts on the the design of it? It was interesting. I saw a, a comment in the article uh, saying it, it looks like a cleaner Lamborghini Urus. Yeah, I can see that. Well, yeah, I can definitely see the, the the Urus parallels. I think it's it's handsome. I, it's you know it, I don't know. I, I'm not going to put a poster of it up on my wall, um, but I think it kind of ticks the boxes there for what Lotus needed. I'm just I'm very curious with with how this premium push for for Lotus goes because we know that they've got another electric SUV coming. They've got an electric sedan coming. They'll also have an electric sports car coming. But it's it's almost like the the company is kind of splitting into two parts there in terms of their sports cars that are designed to appeal to traditional Lotus buyers, but also these luxury cars that are supposed to appeal to, you know, Porsche KN owners, owners of BMW X5s and, and whatnot. Um, now, I think Geely, their Lotus's current owner, was probably pretty chuffed to get their hands on such a heritage nameplate, but Lotus may have a really strong reputation, but it doesn't necessarily have a, a strong reputation as being a, a luxury or a premium brand. It's, it's seen as like a almost like a hardcore kind of enthusiast brand. So if they can parlay that heritage into mainstream appeal, uh, then they, they'll be doing Sort of like what well. MG has done. Well, yeah. I mean, that, that's the thing. When you've got that... 
I mean, that actually, that's a, that's a really good point, Mandy, because with MG, I think as much as a lot of their products are actually, you know, solidly, you know, decent cars, I think a, a, a lot of that brand's success can be attributed to the fact that people go, oh, MG, I've heard of that. It's that kind of that name recognition, that, that kind of brand equity that it makes people just trust it a little bit more than an unfamiliar brand like, say, Havel. Now, that's in the mainstream space with, with more affordable vehicles. Whether Lotus can do the same, well, whether Geely can do the same thing with Lotus in the luxury space, I think is, is another challenge. Uh, but we'll, we'll have to see if that, if that built-in kind of name equity works in their favor. Will, I think the Porsche example you give is a really good one. Ultimately, Lotus has tried to do this before, but it tried to do it in a way that was true to its past as well. And you end up with the Evora, which has been gradually made more hardcore over its life to the point where it's no longer a luxury GT. It is just a race car. Um, and the Europa, which is a slightly awkward looking, slightly unloved, but very interesting part of Lotus's recent history. What Porsche did with the Cayenne early days was say, we're not going to try to make it a 911. It's going to be a Porsche SUV. And the 911 that came in the box to live in their own space and the success of Porsche since then sort of speaks for itself. So I think Lotus and obviously Geely needs to make money from the brand. They've poured a lot into it now. Um, but I think Lotus and Geely are going about this the right way and saying our SUVs are going to be SUVs. We're not going to try to build you an Exige that just happens to be slightly higher off the ground. Mm. And that will allow our sports cars to also speak for themselves. Yeah, they're following the Porsche playbook and, you know, more power to them because, you know, the KN helped keep Porsche afloat. So, I think if we if we want to keep seeing Amiras and, and Lotus sports cars in general, then these SUVs and, and, and electric premium vehicles are going to hopefully help keep Lotus around so they can keep producing those. Well, there you go. That wraps up this week's car news. If you would like to keep up to date, head to carexpo.com.au. Well, this week's two reviews will be done by uh, Mr. Scott Colley. Uh, Scotty, we start off with the 2023 Volvo C40 Recharge. Is this like a cousin to the XC40? It sure is. It has lost a letter from its name and a bit of its sort of roofline. It looks like a coupe now instead of a proper chunky little SUV. Huh. But yeah, under the skin, it's built on the same CMA chassis, which is a essentially the bones of most of what Volvo's smaller cars are at the moment. Um, and it supports internal combustion and electric power. Down the track, we'll see electric-only platforms from Volvo, but for now, it's still an adaptation. Okay. So what um, are the key differences between this and the XC40, other than the fact that this is not as boxy? Uh, the main difference is that it's not as boxy. Um, <laughs> sorry, I, I realise that's a bad answer, but um, it's it's got a very different light signature at the back. It looks far more modern than the XC40 with a very slim little LED detailing that looks awesome in person. And the LEDs sort of like trail off almost. They fade uh, in little dots up to the top. Um, it also uh, is slightly more expensive. You're going to pay about two grand more for the equivalent um, C40 recharge at the entry level and the range-topping twin motor model is three grand more expensive. But yeah, if you were to not like to not have seen an XC40 before, this would look really fresh and new to you. If you were to park them side by side and look at them front on, you'd honestly go, well, what, what's the difference? They are, they are fundamentally very similar. I've driven an XC40 recharge uh pure electric. So it sounds like I don't really need to drive this because I pretty much already know what it's going to feel like. But one thing that I was quite impressed 
uh, by with it was one, the way it drove, but also two, the way it was packaged. Because when you get into a Polestar 2, which is on the same platform, you feel really hemmed in. It feels very much like an internal combustion vehicle that's been turned into an EV. The packaging just isn't quite right. The XC40, somehow, maybe it's the boxy shape, kind of mitigates that. But how does the C40 fare being a less boxy version? Yeah, uh, it's a bit of a mixed bag because relative to pretty much everything else that is petrol powered in this sort of size class, the XC40 is the best packaged by a mile. Um, Mm -hmm. It's got massive boot. It's got awesome storage space up front. It's got really good visibility all around. A lot of that carries over to the C40. The front seats in particular are really comfortable. Volvo does the best seats in motoring, uh, short of a set of proper Porsche bucket seats. Um, They're they're just awesome and supportive and they look great. And that all carries over. There's heaps of storage and everything's really laid out very logically. If you're hopping out of another Volvo and into this, it's not going to feel like a huge shift. The rear seats are surprisingly good as well. Uh, I can sit back there and it's a sloping roofed SUV with a glass sort of top that doesn't actually open, which is usually a recipe just for horrible hair days. <laughs> um, but I can sit back there and my head is just gently touching the headlining and I'm weirdly tall. I'm two meters tall. So if you've got kids or you know teenagers who are growing rapidly, they are going to fit back there. Although if practicality is your focus, we'd still recommend the XC40. The big difference, I suppose, is in the boot. The claimed boot number is actually not all that different. Um, on paper, Volvo says you get 489 litres with all five seats in place, which is down 93 litres on the XC40, and that's all in the roof area itself. So if all you're ever carrying is shopping bags or golf clubs or something like that, you'll never notice. But if you do want to put a washing machine in the back, the C40 is going to be less practical. I think the other thing worth mentioning is as practical as this car is, it's practical for a car built on internal combustion bones. Um And ultimately, price-wise, this thing now lines up with the Hyundai Ioniq 5, with the Kia EV6, um, Tesla Model Y. And although it is still spacious relative to those cars, although it doesn't feel ancient or tiny, you sit in an Ioniq or an EV6, and it's got this beautiful flat floor in front of you. It's got a a sliding center console. It just feels fundamentally different. It opens up more opportunities, whereas the Volvo although it does feel like the best interpretation of what it is, is inherently limited by the fact it shares bits with the petrol car. What are your thoughts on the infotainment system, especially being an Apple user? Because I have a story about this that I'd like to share if I haven't already. But first, Scott, your thoughts. Um, I, I like the infotainment system based on the quick poke around that I had, and I've liked it previously in Volvos with the same Android automotive system. Um, I don't like that CarPlay is wired only. I think in the latest, greatest systems, it really should be wireless. And I also think that Volvo has kind of limited itself by making it look like its old system. Um, When it first came out, I think it was 2013, something like that, in the XC90, the census system was really quite revolutionary because it didn't have physical climate controls. It had really clever tiles, and it essentially preceded a lot of what we see in infotainment systems today. But the game's moved on. If you play around with the system in a Polestar 2, which fundamentally is the same thing, it looks a little bit more modern and colourful. It feels a little bit faster. And just jumping from places to places feels a little more intuitive to me. You get used to it, obviously. And and I think, again, if you're a Volvo owner, the learning curve is very shallow. But Volvo could be doing maybe a little bit more just to make its cars feel a bit fresher on the tech front. See... 
You're actually lucky having an iPhone in this instance because even though it's Android Automotive, it has Apple CarPlay. It does not have Android Auto. So even though it's an Android-based system, and correct me if I'm wrong, but when I was in the XC40 Recharge, it didn't have this. When I was on the Polestar 2, it didn't have this. So it means that as an Android user, even though I'm using an Android system, I can't access certain functions that I can access in Android Auto. Now, I can log into Spotify on the system, which is lovely, except did I tell you guys about the time that I thought my Spotify got hacked? What? Please do. I told Scott this, Mandy, this this is one, and I don't think anybody listening to the podcast um, has heard this before. So I'm driving to uh, to the Melbourne office in, it wasn't even in a Volvo at the time, and my Spotify songs kept changing. And um, the uh, Frozen soundtrack would come on, Baby Shark would come on, David Hasselhoff music would come on. <laughs> I had no idea what was going on. I don't, and I ended up logging, going onto my computer, logging myself out of all devices. I'm at a launch event a few months later and I run into a colleague from another publication and she asks me, oh, did you like all the songs I was adding to your playlist? And I'm, I'm like, I'm sorry, what? She's like, I was in the same car after you and you left yourself logged into Spotify. Oh gosh, I'm doing the accent. So anybody listening might know who it is. Um, but basically she just added songs to this queue. I thought my Spotify had gotten hacked or something like that, but it was because I left myself logged in. Now, obviously, if you are buying a Volvo or a Polestar, that's probably not going to be a big deal. But if you're just borrowing someone's, keep that in mind. It was a very good prank. I give her credit. Yeah, I do think, Will, one of the defenses that people have given for Android Automotive working the way it does is that you can download, rather than plugging your phone in, you just download Spotify onto the car and you don't have to worry about it. And I realize also we work in a weird world where lots of people drive the same car back to back to back. But I would much rather, I think, sorry, the, the final thing is if two people share a car and I log in or I unlock the car with my phone, it'll log into my preferences. If my partner logs in with her phone, it's meant to go to her preferences, all of that. That works really well in theory, but I ultimately love the fact that with CarPlay, yeah, everything I've been doing on my phone is just there. It doesn't need to sync. It doesn't need to download anything. I just take it with me and it means that Spotify in three years' time is still going to be supporting the iPhone, but we've seen with a lot of Google products, uh, as Google sort of changes direction on a whim with certain software products or hardware products, all of a sudden older tech doesn't get supported and maybe there's a point where your Spotify app in your Volvo isn't as up-to-date as the Spotify app on your phone and all that sort of thing. We've gone off on a tangent, but yeah, it's a brave new world and it's one that needs a little bit of fiddling with. Hey, guys, if you're listening, follow me on Google+. Plus. <laughs> I'm, I'm watching you with my Google Lens. <laughs> if you can also send me a text on Google Messenger or Google Hangouts or Gmail Messenger or Gchat or any one of those ones that they've built and then killed, yeah, we could do a separate podcast on this. Oh, my God, we so could. Um, now, so how, how does the C40 recharge drive, Scully? Um, so the C40 is available with two different powertrains. There's a single motor front wheel drive model. It's got 170 kilowatts and 330 newton meters. The dual motor is a 300 kilowatt, 660 newton meter version with identical outputs to the XC40 that shares the same bits and pieces. Um, the base model has a 69 kilowatt hour lithium ion battery and the top model has a 78 kilowatt hour battery. Despite having the bigger battery, the uh, the top one actually has 14 kilometers less range. It'll do a claimed 420 Ks. 
the um, the lighter, less power hungry single motor will do 434 on the WLTP test cycle. We drove both these cars in South Australia. We spent more time in the dual motor than the single motor. I tell you what, that dual motor absolutely hammers. Um, I shared a car with another journal and both of us were con- consistently blown away by how fast it was. It'll do zero to 100 in 4.7 seconds. And because it's all wheel drive and quite compact, although it still does feel quite tall and heavy, you can kind of tip it into corners and it doesn't do that really like leany sort of thing that some electric SUVs do. And then once you're halfway through the corner, you put your foot down and it just goes. It's almost golf R fast in a way, yeah. um, but with none of the gear shifts and other bits and pieces you have to fiddle with. It's really impressive. Um, one of the things Volvo does really well is kind of make things feel normal, where a lot of electric cars, including stuff from Hyundai and Kia on their new electric platform, make you fiddle with the regen with paddles and have different drive modes and that sort of thing. Volvo gives you two choices. You can have regen on or off, and you can have heavy steering or light steering. It's like one of those donut shops in Melbourne where you walk in and just go, I want my coffee with or without milk, and I want my donut to be this today because they only have two options. I'll tell you when you're next in town. We'll, we'll go. It'll be fun. Okay. It's a very regional um, reference I did not get. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very specific donut shop I'm thinking of as well. I realize it's not a broad thing, but bear with me here. <laughs> um, Ultimately, I think what that means is most people will get into the C40 and they'll change the settings once and then never touch them again. And it just means that this thing doesn't have a push-button start or anything. You open the door, you sit down, you put it in drive. A lot of the thinking that goes into transitioning from petrol to electric power, once you've driven the car once or twice, disappears and it becomes a a really simple experience. Um, That's not unique to Volvo. Teslas feel like that as well, but... Just because of the, the normalcy of the body shape, the way the interior feels normal and the lack of choice, it does feel like the learning curve on this is slightly shallower than it could be elsewhere when you're switching to electric power. Whether or not you want that is another question. I can I can totally vouch for that. Having driven the XC40 Recharge Pure Electric, oh, I hate that long name. Um, it, I just instantly got so comfortable driving that the one pedal driving mode was just really good. Um, the only thing that really gave me pause each time was the not pressing the start button, not turning it off. That, oh, it still makes me anxious. I get anxious with cars that lock as you walk away from them because I'm always like, hold on, did it do it? So, but otherwise, (laughs) you know, I'm glad, Scott, that that the C40 drives a lot like the XC40 because the XC40 is a very good thing. The last thing is that this is an electric car that relative to everything else that's on offer in Australia, we might actually have decent supply of. Volvo says it's going to have 550-odd to sell before the end of 2022. And come next year, it's expecting to have 1,550. It's also going to have more again than that of the XC40. And yeah, relative to Hyundai, which is getting batches of 10, 20, 50 cars at a time, having the knowledge that 1,500 of these are going to come to Australia next year, even though they might all still be sold quite quickly means that Volvo actually has quite a compelling option because you can recommend it and know there is a chance that people are going to get their hands on one. About time. Uh, Can you take us through the car expert rating you gave it for an eight? I can. So the car scored really strongly on cost of ownership. Three years of maintenance is free. Uh, It was a nine out of ten. Safety was very strong. Um, The value for money equation a little bit less so because it goes head-to-head with some bigger, more advanced electric cars for the same price. Um, And then sitting right in the middle were fit for purpose and handling dynamics. So it's a bit of a broad spread. 
I think the eight rating on paper might sort of sound very similar to lots of other cars, but this is one of those little electric cars that I really enjoyed driving. And given the choice, even though it might not rate as high as some of the other cars, I don't. Maybe this is the one you'd grab the keys for. Hmm. Interesting. Well, that review is live now. If you'd like to check it out, are we going to move on to the second? SUV EV, which is the 2023 Genesis Electrified GV70. This is not really a rival to the C40, is it? <laughs> it's not. It's bigger. It's more expensive. Yeah. It's a lot fancier. Um, but it is similarly fast. This thing will do zero to 100 in like 4.6 seconds as well, even though it is a 2.3 ton midsize <laughs> SUV. So I suppose they do have that in common. <laughs> um, so, um, Premium car, I'm assuming a premium price. Yeah, you need some deep pockets for this one. Um, 127800 before on-road costs. Although there are no options on that, you can pay two grand more for matte paint, um, but that's about it. That makes it 16500 grand more than the smaller but technically more advanced Genesis GV60, which has got the same eGMP platform as the Ionic 5 and the EV6 underneath it. And it's priced roughly in line with the Mercedes EQC 400 Formatic Sport. God, that's a catchy name. Uh, at 124,300. Um, it is worth noting though, with this Genesis, you do get everything. Um, and I, I really do mean everything. So you sit in this thing and it's got quilted Nappa leather seats as standard. Oh. They're heated, they're ventilated, the steering wheel's heated. You get big widescreen displays. You get a little climate control display, panoramic roof that actually opens. It's not a fixed one like we see on some electric cars. Um, and some really nice high-end ownership touches as well, like the choice between three years of free ChargeFox charging or the installation of a home charger. Um, free maintenance and a loan car that might be delivered to you if you needed to be. So there's lots of stuff that Genesis does that kind of justifies that price when you really dig into the details relative to a Merc EQC or a BMW iX3. Wow. Can you walk us through, now you've mentioned that the GV60 is on a different platform to this. This is based on a combustion engine platform. GV60 is on a dedicated EV platform. But in terms of pricing, they kind of almost overlap, they're, they're butt up against each other. Can you explain how these two slot into the local lineup and, and what really the differences are to the average punter that's going to walk into a showroom and, and be faced with two electric SUVs? Yeah, so, I mean, the differences are um, the differences are down to the body style. The GV60 is a little bit smaller and it's got quite a unique look about it. It's almost like a, a Grand Theft Auto car, uh, the way that it's kind of got a hunchback shape and it, it really does look nothing like nothing else on the road. Um, the GV70 is much more conventional and G Genesis said as much at the launch. It's expecting this to be a car for people who want to go electric but don't want to shout about it as loudly. So it is really more of a rival to the BMW X3 or Mercedes EQC. There's also some weirdness in they don't share a platform. The GV70 is built on the same chassis as the petrol car, but it actually has the same 800-volt um, charging tech. It's got the same vehicle-to-load tech. It's got the same motors as the GV60 dual motor. So they are technically uh, very different cars underneath. But ultimately, when you look at the numbers on paper, that sort of doesn't play out in any huge disadvantage to the GV70. And that is one of the things that we've praised with this car. Often cars that are converted from internal combustion to electric power feel compromised. Although there are some compromises in the GV70, it does feel like it's still got all the best of the stuff from the eGMP platform. Hmm. Does it feel comfortable to be inside? 
yeah, it's it's a really lovely place to spend time. Um, I personally, I'm still warming to some things Genesis does on the interior. I think the fact they put their little rotary transmission mm. selector right next to the rotary infotainment controller and they look the God. same and they feel kind of the same and they're within touch oh. is madness. Um, and it also... Genesis needs to do some work on the tech in front of the driver because that 3D instrument cluster makes me personally feel really cross-eyed really quickly and doesn't actually show anything you can't just get with analog dials. It just is two fake analog dials and then a trip computer in the middle. So there's some bits and pieces Genesis does need to work on, but when you sit in there, all of the materials feel high quality. That's in the front seat and the back seat, which isn't the case in a lot of its rivals. The driving position is awesome, and it's really nice and quiet on smooth highways and at city speeds. When you're going a little bit faster on country highways, um, maybe it's a little bit noisy. You do hear from the Michelin EV tires more than I'd quite like to. But yeah, ultimately, it is a really relaxed place to spend time. It's also a better riding car than I expected because previously I've driven a couple of Genesis SUVs, one of which was the GV80, that felt a little bit kind of loose. The body on the GV80 really floats around and then sometimes it smashes hard into bumps and Mm. just needs a bit of fiddling. The GV70 has got a version of the same road control preview suspension. Uh, It uses a camera to see what's happening with the road ahead and then essentially is meant to get the dampers ready for it. Um... But, uh, yeah, it it does a good job of balancing kind of comfort, which is obviously important in a big family SUV, with letting what is a really heavy car not feel like a big floaty bus. Uh, I was just going to ask you about the heaviness of it. Does it feel heavy when you put the foot down? I know you said the 0 to 100 wasn't too bad, but does it still feel heavy? It does, yeah. Look, there is no hiding the fact that ultimately – it's 2.3 tonnes worth of car to keep in check. And you can't get around that no matter how clever you are with your suspension. So no one is expecting this to be a sports car and it's not quite as fun to drive as the petrol car, but that's not the point. Um, It's not an issue on the highway. It sometimes floats a little bit over crests and sort of just feels like maybe it can't quite keep its mass in line. It's like it jiggles around a little bit after jumping, but again, very minor thing and to be honest i'd much rather the car feels relaxed like that than feeling really harsh Mm. if you do try to tip it into a corner you just need to turn a little bit earlier because you sort of feel the weight go and settle and once you're there there's heaps of grip and you can accelerate on out but yeah ultimately you just need to be a little bit wary of the fact that it is a heavy beast and again that's not unique to the genesis it's pretty much every mid-size electric suv and it's also not really the point of this car to be a sports car so more than happy to give the car a pass on that have you driven this wheel? No, I haven't. I uh, I really need to get behind the wheel of this. And I know we've also got an electrified G80 up here in Brisbane that I'm very keen to drive. Um, having okay. driven much of the Genesis range and having driven the GB70 and, and quite liked it. Um, now, Scott, just a question about pricing. I know we spoke about pricing before and how it compared to EQC. But do you think that Genesis's, Genesis's pricing strategy is, is sound here? Because... There's a lot more standard equipment with this than there is with the EQC, but it is at basically the same price. Now, do you, one, do you think the EQC is the better car? And two, do you think that you know customers are going to see the value proposition that the, that the Genesis offers? Look, I, I think customers are going to see the value equation of what Genesis offers, and I, and I think that's probably a, quite a significant draw because ultimately – 
when you are a new brand, you need to go over and above to win people over. And I think if you are looking at an electric car, you're potentially less likely to be a badge snob because your choices are more limited. But I think also you're making a very conscious decision to buy to buy a car that is a bit more expensive and you're trying to recoup costs over time. So the fact that you don't need to pay for a home charger or maybe you don't need to pay for uh, Fox charging for a certain period of ownership is definitely going to play into it. I think it also plays into the luxury angle. And one of the things that we love about electric cars is how comfortable and how quiet they are. Um, the Genesis looks like a Bentley on a budget. It looks fantastic in person. It feels very luxurious. And there's something very luxurious as well about the idea of you know, a polite person coming to your house and taking your car away when it needs a service and giving you something else to drive. A so polite person. If a we're talking person. about... <laughs> yes. Well, I assume they're polite. Um, if we're talking about the the ownership experience, um, yeah, I, I think that definitely plays into it. Relative to an EQC, I, I like how comfortable and quiet the EQC is, but I think the Genesis looks better. Uh, I also enjoy the, the, the just the punch of the Genesis feels more in your face than the EQC. So for me, I'd probably have the Genesis. Um, but again, both of these cars are sold out for quite a while. Mercedes is struggling for electric car stock. Genesis has said it might be up to 10 months if you want to order one of these. Wow. Ultimately, what I say doesn't really matter because if people are going to put their money on the line and wait, um, they're not waiting to hear what I think. <laughs> are you actually, I was about to ask you what you thought of the styling um, relative to its rivals. So you, you answered that there. I mean, I think this looks fantastic and I think it looks a lot better than the GV60. So I actually, one was randomly in my neighborhood um, and not how I would have specced it, to be honest. It wasn't one of the cool funky colors, which I think if you're getting the GV60, you got to really lean into the weird styling and, and go for one of the really bright colors. This wasn't that way. Um, but then I did see a kind of cool pale blue one on the story bridge the other day. Um, I think it's it's very interesting that, that Genesis has got these two vehicles priced quite similarly to each other. And we know that the electrified GV70 is, you know, a little bit bigger in some dimensions and, and whatnot. But the electrified GV70 is, and you mentioned it in your review as well, Scott, it's, it's almost more kind of conventional um, in that it just looks like a GV70 with a slightly kind of closed off grille. And the GV70 is a very good looking SUV. Whereas the GV60, I, I'm still waiting for it to grow on me. There's details of it I like, but it's just... It's just very unusual for a brand that puts out some really good-looking cars. I realize now there wasn't really a question in that. Um, Statement. Like, <laughs> some really good-looking cars? <laughs> there we go. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> well, Scully, you've uh, given it an 8.2 Car Expert rating, and you can go and read that review now at Car Expert. Hey, Scully. Where is the team off to next week? It's a bit of a quieter week uh, on the back of a few really busy weeks and then obviously the Cup Day public holiday in Melbourne. Um, Mike is off to Sydney to get behind the wheel of something exciting and electric that I don't know if we can talk about. <sighs> um, but he's also going to drive the Audi, have a look at the new Audi S8 and sit down with the Audi folks. And then at the end of next week, I'm driving the new BMW X1, which I'm actually really excited about. Ooh. My dad was a bit of a weirdo and he bought a manual diesel first generation X1. And it was always what? one of those weird cars that never found many fans. Um, but I'm curious to see how it's evolved because even the, the one that they're replacing isn't all that flash relative to what's on offer elsewhere. But I think this one looks good in the pictures. Yeah. 
Oh, Mr. Kelly, you crazy cat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Golf GTI into manual diesel X1. Wow. Oh, it, oh did it blow blue smoke? <laughs> there, was, there was some mechanical issue with it that um, forced him to get rid of it. I think it was uh, a, I, yeah, I can't remember exactly the details, but there was something wrong with it that meant it ended up, ended up disappearing quite, quite early in its life. So two questions, Scott, was it rear wheel drive or all wheel drive? And second question, was he ferrying people in it? Because your family is notoriously tall and the first generation X1 was notoriously poorly packaged. <laughs> uh, yeah, he, he used it as his, as the family car. Mum had a bigger car. Um, so if we all had to go somewhere, we'd go in that. Um, because yeah, my folks are both six foot two. I'm now six, seven. My brother's six, five. We're, we're hard to fit wow. in a car. Um, something in the water. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but no, Will, I can't remember what the mechanical gremlin was that ended up going back and forward between he and BMW and ending up. Yeah. Anyway, I'm not going to, I'm not going to throw random darts at a dartboard and hope to hit <laughs> Anyway, getting back on track, um, and what cars have we got coming up in the garage, Will? So you guys down in Melbourne are going to get a chance to drive the Citroen C5X uh, that I went to the launch event for, so I'll be very curious to hear your thoughts on that. Uh, Kia Sorento GT Line Diesel, so another vehicle with very long weights. Not saying that the C5X is, but we were talking about vehicles earlier in the podcast (laughs) that have long weights. Um, Mercedes-Benz EQB 250 is another vehicle that um, one of us has recently been to the launch event for that we're finally getting a chance to, not finally, quite quickly getting a chance to uh, have through our garage. Um, an Audi A3 sedan, 35 TFSI. Um, and up here in Brisbane, I just swapped out of a Ford Escape plug-in hybrid with giant, massive decals on the side saying the new Ford Escape plug-in oh hybrid. Was, I was just doing free advertising for Ford, you know, <laughs> driving this thing around like a rolling billboard um, or a Red Bull car. Um, and now I'm swapping into... Another vehicle we went to a launch fairly recently for that I know Scott and I both have very good things to say about, Ford Everest in Sport V6 trim. Um, so, yeah, I'll be very curious to, um, to uh, spend some more time in that. Mm, indeed. All right, that is a wrap for this week's Car Expert podcast. William Stockford and Scott Colley, thank you. Oh, you said my oh, name said- first. <laughs> Thanks, Mandy. <laughs>